disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. People ask me all the time why I felt to include what I included in the book. And I just went with my gut and I went with my heart. And I know that there are women out there who struggled with the same things. And I wanted them to know that, you know, we got through this. We are stronger than we think we are. Wrap yourself up in this one. How to Stitch an American Dream, the story of Jenny Doan, the grandmother of 24 who persevered through personal and financial hardships to reinvent as the YouTube influencing face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company. Stitch around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from her studio in Hamilton, Missouri, is Jenny Doan. She is author of the new book, How to Stitch an American Dream. You're founder of the Missouri Star Quilt Company. It's quite a story of your career coming back from turmoil and loneliness and uh, so many things that you wrote about in this book. You call it a story of family, faith, and the power of giving. How are you? I am good today. Good to be here. Well, I'm a polite, nice Jewish boy, but remind, remind everyone out there listening how old you are and how many grandchildren you have. I am 64 years old, and I have 25 grandchildren, and counting. 25 (laughs) grandchildren. And if you look back even 10 or 15 years or 20 years, could you have imagined that you are a bona fide uh, YouTube franchise? You have so many followers on YouTube. You're, You're an Instagram phenomenon. You're a social media. I mean, so many people have been at home. Uh, The Missouri Star Quilt Company has gotten so much press. You've been married for 41 years. You've rode several different personal and uh, financial crises. And now you're one of the largest quilting channels on YouTube, which didn't even really exist 15, 16 years ago. It's true. It's true. (laughs) So tell me, I I guess I want to go back to you in high school. And I read about your childhood in this and the idyllic and close upbringing you had with your family and the close relationship with your father, but certain things that were left unsaid. Uh, you eloped with your high school sweetheart and you went off and you you got secretly married and um, things really <laughs> spiraled after that. I know, I mean, it's painful for you to talk about, but I, I want to illustrate it for our listeners that you didn't necessarily come from a position of privilege and you came from a position of turmoil if we take this back to your late teens. Talk to me about that. Oh, I totally did. So uh, I actually didn't marry my high school sweetheart. I married a guy I knew for about six weeks on a dare in Reno, Nevada. And that was kind of a, kind of a shock to everybody I knew and everybody who knew me. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was not a good decision, it turns out. You know, it's always better to get to know those guys better. But yeah, it, is, uh, it was quite a different life than the, the one I've been privileged to be a part of now. Well, you describe in the book, and it was jarring um, in how 
your partner struck you for the first time and you were aghast and you were shocked. That's something you did not witness with your mom and dad, but you were willing to give him second chances, even when you had kind of left to recover with your, your family across the country or several hours away. You gave him a second chance to take you back, that you were a person of faith. You were a person of second chances. You thought the best of people. So I think uh, growing up, I feel like I grew up in Leave it to Beaver's house. You know, my parents loved each other. They loved us. You know, it was a it was a lovely home to grow up in. You know, they were happy. My dad rode his 10-speed to work. You know, I mean, it was just, it was just a lovely home. And um, I thought all marriages were like that. And so, of course, when my marriage started differently, I can remember calling my mom and saying, you know, is it okay if we fight, you know? And, and she was like, well, a lot of couples fight, you know, and I mean, she's trying to help me through this thing. And I was just so surprised at how different it was in reality for me in that case. Sure. And so for me, I just kept thinking if I try harder, if I, and I think, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, terminology for it now, but of course, then we didn't know anything about it. And I just thought if I try harder, if I cook better, if I, if I'm more patient, if I say the right thing, you know, uh, it was always my fault. It was always something I could felt like I could do uh, to make it better. And so I, uh, I just kept trying harder and harder. And he was the, you know, he was the first person I'd ever been with. And I gave my heart to him, you know. And so I wanted to, I wanted to make that right. And I just felt like it was all in on my shoulders that if I worked hard enough, tried hard enough, that I would be able to make that happen. And no matter what I did, it just wasn't enough. It didn't work. It wasn't good enough. And I just kept trying more things. I'd pray harder. I'd go to church more. I'd, you know, talk to my parents. I, you know, I just kept trying and trying. And no matter what I did, it just didn't seem to have the effect that I wanted. As you wrote in the book after uh, you were hit, you said when the pain and shock wore off a little bit, I thought, okay, that didn't work. That did not work at all. He had a way of spinning things around and blaming me. And then I would blame myself. I felt like maybe I had egged him on because he said I was a, quote, mouthy woman. And I started to doubt myself. I wondered yeah. if he was right, if it was true that if someone said something to me, it was in my nature to say something right back. All I can say is this. When you are in the deep muck of it all and somebody who is supposed to love you is telling you over and over that it is all your fault, you just start to believe that and you get really lost. You just truly do. You just truly do. You just start to believe it and you start to think, well, I'm just... I just am worthless. I just can't do this. You know, it was interesting when my dad actually came to get me, I can remember him looking at me and going, what happened to my girl? Because I was a girl from a new generation. You know, I was that, you know, my parents were the very obedient generation. And then I came along and I was right in the midst of the 60s and the 70s where everybody was questioning sure. everything. And they loved that. You know, my parents loved that. But um, this man did not love that. So <laughs> it didn't work out very well for me. At the time, at the time, it did not. You wrote in the journal and, and you excerpted in How to Stitch an American Dream, if, if I can read from it. You made your first <clears throat> journal entry on July 7th, 1979. I'm starting this journal during a period of my life when my feelings need an outlet for expression. As of now, I'm living with my parents, with my child, Natalie, who is 14 months old. I am pregnant due to deliver on August 3rd, approximately three weeks from now. I'm living with my folks due to the fact that my husband and I are separated after nearly three years of marriage and almost two children. He's decided to live a life completely contrary to that of our beliefs. He doesn't want anything to do with his family or the church. So at age 22, I am left with two children to raise. I love these children more than life itself, and I feel so sorry for him when he realizes what he has given up. He will be really sorry. 
I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything that happens happens for a reason, and also that God will never give you more than you can handle. I've gained such a strong testimony of the gospel and the love of the Lord for each one of us. I feel that my attitude toward all that has happened is good. I can't be sad all of my life. I must go on. I'm trying to do that as much as I can. The hardest part is that I need companionship so badly. I don't like being alone, but I suppose everything can be gotten used to. We must really trust the Lord and let him lead our lives. Only then can we be sure of making the right decision. You know, Jenny, my heart really, really breaks for you when I read this because of the sunshine that came in your life in your first child and your daughter, and it was such a, a, a beautiful and vulnerable time in your life, and you needed love. You needed more sunshine around that. I can, as a father, re- remember that feeling and that vulnerability, and if anything, you got just the opposite at, at the very tender age of 22. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It was a tough, tough time for sure. You know, my mom is a genealogist, and so she's all about family history. And so I wrote I wrote my journals knowing that somebody would read them someday, you know. And so I was careful about what I said, and yet I tried hard to explain it because that was my only friend. That was my outlet. You know, I came home, and the people who were my friends before were all gone in college someplace else, and and here I was. Um, and I had children and they didn't have children. And so, you know, I really, it really was a very, very lonely time for me. And it was a time where I, I had to come to grips with the fact that I'd really, I'd really done this to myself. I'd messed up. I'd made wrong decisions. You know, these were my choices. And now I was back here at square zero. And how was I going to reconcile this? How was I going to make it all work? Now, innately, I have uh, a very Pollyanna personality. And so I'm always looking for the good. I'm always looking for the right. And at that time, the only place I could find that good was in a belief system. And so I would be like, mm. okay, if, if, you know, again, you can go back to the, if I just, if I just try really hard, things will work out. If I pray really good, things will work out, you know, and I still believe that. And yet I think it has a lot to do with your attitude as well. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've matured quite a bit since then. I don't think I've lost that belief system at all. But I, I do know that it, it has a lot more to do with um, picking yourself up and just moving forward, too. With everything that you know now, uh, Grandma Jenny, uh, <laughs> why wasn't education really broached? Why wasn't kind of this idea that, you know what, you're going to even home ec or go through high school and go to college or get an associate's degree? I mean, your parents were forward thinking. They were enlightened. Why wasn't that? That's kind of what I was wondering, and yet I'm not. I'm trying to not superimpose, you know, 2021 coastal elitist values on on your upbringing, which was otherwise pretty idyllic. So to be a hundred percent upfront, my dad and mom were only interested in my brother having an education because he was going to support a family. The rest of us would just be moms and stay home. And so, uh, so I've talked with my sisters about this and I'm like, did you ever feel like you could go to college? Did you ever feel like it was an, an opportunity for you? Were you, were you ever talked to about it? I can even remember going to my high school counselor and saying to him, I'm really struggling with algebra and I need some help. And then he said to me, well, you will never use algebra in your life. Just take business math because if anything, you'll be a secretary, wow. you know, or, you know, or something like that. And I, and I was just like, Okay, so I guess I'll take business math. You know, I, I never felt like that was an option for me to, to take, to go to college. And I, you know, I was surprised when I realized that that really wasn't an option. My brother was supposed to go to college. He was going to raise a family. And of course, this is my perspective at my young age. But having talked with my sisters about it, they said the same thing. 
Nope, you know, that wasn't something that they, it was never said, after you go to high school, you're going to go to college. You know, we were to get a job right away. You know, we always worked really hard. Um, but we got a job. I got a job in a bank. I got a job in but a... But that's, that's the thing. You did You did mind-expanding things as a teenager. You go to Moscow. You go to the Iron Curtain. Yeah. You know, with a choral group. You even raise the money to go off on yourself. What is it? You pick celery yeah, I, back in the day. So there was some field, right? autonomy and self... I mean, how many people of your age, you know, college or otherwise, would have gone, you know, and, and be spied wearing jeans in Moscow and had a government agent, you know, attached to them? And I guess... Going back to your mind back then, did you think that it, it kind of had to have a storybook ending that you meet a prince or uh, uh, you said you were guy crazy in the book, a guy is just going to take care of you, that there was this inherent paternalism? Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. So I actually planned my life out when I was 13. I even knew that I wanted my name to be Jenny Livingston. I thought Jenny Livingston was such a lovely name. <laughs> I never even met anyone named Livingston. But, you know, my goal was to uh, find a great guy and, you know, and get married and have babies and live happily ever after. That was my, that was my whole thought process. And, uh, you know, it just, <laughs> it just didn't quite work the way I planned. I never saw myself divorced. Never, ever. That was not something that was even in the cards for me. I didn't think. There was a lot of stigma attached to that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jenny Doan. She is author of How to Stitch an American Dream a story of family, faith, and the power of giving. She's founder of the Missouri Star Quilt Company, which is quite a story. Over just the past decade, uh, this tiny, you know, Hamilton, Missouri company called Missouri Star Quilt Company has grown from your corner shop, Jenny, with one quilting machine and two bolts of fabric for sale to become the largest quilt company in the world, really, truly riding YouTube and Instagram and uh, Everything that's been going on on Pinterest and the home crafts boom, and especially over the pandemic where people were homebound. But I still want to take you back to your 20s before we unpack that story. Tell me about Ron. Ron coming into your life where you had, you know, you were, you had a 14 month old, you were pregnant with another. I guess you were about to have your second child. Your husband, your partner had left you. Yeah. So Ron actually, um, he started coming over to visit me. When my car had trouble, I asked him if he could help me. Now, Ron was a guy I would have never gone for because he was easy. He was available. He was right there. He, he, there was no chase for him. You know, my fun was always in the chase. Uh. Could I get this guy, you know? And, uh, and Ron was just willing to help. He was solid. He was steady. Uh, and he came over and he came over to fix my car. And my dad said, Jim, anytime you want to come visit Jenny, you come on and visit Jenny. And he, he just came over every day from that moment on. And, you know, we would talk about things that we wanted and we would sit up late and talk. And it was always, you know, we had a, a three cushion couch and my mother always joked that the two outside cushion was, would go down, would sink down from us talking. But when the middle one went down, then that was when she was going to worry, you know, and we just would sit and talk and we had so much in common and we so enjoyed each other. And um, at, at one mm-hmm. point he asked me to marry him and I said, you know, I just don't love you like that. I'm expecting the butterflies. I'm expecting the fireworks. I'm expecting a really big sign. I'm not going to make this mistake again. So I am not going to get married unless I know 100% that this is what I am supposed to do. And so, you know, he would he would talk to me and talk to me and talk to me about that. And he'd be like, I'd be a really good but husband. But hold on, Jenny, how was, how was he... How was he around your daughter, if you don't mind my asking? How was he in terms of inquiring about being a father? My gosh, he was the only one who could put Natalie to sleep. He would pick her up and carry her, and she would comfort right away and and fall asleep. And, you know, the rest of us, we we just couldn't even put her to sleep. And so, 
my kids loved him and they always have, you know, they've never known any other dad, you know, they obviously most of us don't remember before we were eight or so, you know, and, and these little girls and he loved them. He just thought it was so cool that everywhere we went, people thought we were a family. And, um, and that was something that was foreign to me because that was not something that my first husband wanted at all, you know, and so I was like, you like it? You like that people think we're a family? You know, and he's like, oh, it's what I've dreamed of my whole life, you know? And I mean, he held their hands, he held them. He, I mean, he was just, he was just perfect with them. He was just amazing. Mm. You guys get married in 1980, a little bit more than 40 years ago. Yeah, we did. What was it like initially financially? I mean, with your situation, with kind of, uh, you must be, as in the book you described, really mindful of not making the same mistakes, not willing to trust as much as you were as a as a as a teenager, yeah. uh, but it was a tough time financially to kind of make a new start of it. It really was. So Ron was a motorcycle mechanic. He worked for the Honda company, and um, oh, I think he made you know I don't know six or eight dollars an hour. I was still driving the car that I bought when I was in high school. I drove a uh, Pinto, a yellow Pinto. You know, he had an old mm-hmm. LTD, and we just we were just. You know, because once I gave my heart over to the fact that I really was going to marry him, you know, you give your whole heart. And so I just, I just loved him so completely. And, you know, and there were moments when your baggage creeps in, you know, and you're like, oh, the, you know, this is something I should worry about. Where have you been? You know, have, ha, where, where, did, where did you go? You said you'd be home at, you know. And so there are times when that baggage comes in, but I just love that man. He was, he, when you get married, let me just say it is wonderful to be cherished. It is wonderful to be adored. And that man mm-hmm. ad- has adored me and cherished me my entire life. And I am so grateful and feel very, very blessed because of that. It's, uh, it's just one of the sweetest things I've, I've ever been able to be part of. What was your relationship with work and hustle in the early 80s as a second time, you know, newlywed? I go back to the immediately when your parents said, all right, we'll front half the cost of your trip to the Soviet Union when you were in high school and you're like, sure, I'll raise the rest. I have no fear of that. Tell me about it. So I always felt like um, uh, if I could work hard, I could do anything. You know, my parents worked hard. And uh, like, for instance, when I was a, a teenager, my mom wanted to redo the kitchen. So she actually got a loan to redo it and then took a job. And she said, I'm only going to work this job to pay this loan off, but this is because I wanted this new kitchen. And so that was our mindset, you know, whatever we wanted, we would do. And with Ron, when Ron and I got married, you know, his income was enough to get us a home and pay a car payment and pay our insurance and, you know, the, all the things like that. But anything extra that we needed, I knew I could figure out how to do that. And so, you know, I squarely looked at the things that I could do well. I did a lot of crafts. I did a lot of craft shows. I did a lot of uh, sewing uh, for people. I sewed for the YMCA. I you know, did mending for people. I did alterations. I took in clothing and uh, made clothing for other people. You know, we would alter wedding gowns, would alter, you know, prom gowns, anything, you know, anything sewing I felt like I could take on. And I was constantly doing that for anything extra that we needed to do. It was interesting as my children got older, Hillary was in high school choir and they had to wear these gowns for everyone. And so I'd be like, all right, well, let's make a gown. And at that time, fabric was much cheaper than buying uh, a garment. And so, you know, we would go find this fabric and we would make this thing. And one time I remember she stopped and she looked at me and she said, you know, it, it's occurred to me that if if you couldn't sew, I probably wouldn't be able to have a new gown. And I'm like, you probably wouldn't, you know. And it was just good for for me, for her to realize that. 
And, you know, that's just what we did. We made it happen. You know, the girls, I'd say, my boys would say, I, I want this. And I'd be like, all right, if you get a job and you make this much, this is how long you'll have to work before you get it. And then you'll have it, you know? And they were like, oh, okay, okay. You know, because we didn't have any extra for anything like that. You know, you talk about 1984 when the your your next child, Jacob, was born. You go into a case in that summer of pretty severe postpartum depression. And, you know, you, you characterize it as the after baby blues and you leaned on your friends from church mm-hmm. to help you out. But I, I think back at this now and I compare it to the present. You know, we didn't talk about mental health. No, then. we did not. And we it's did something not. that now you, you see your contemporaries, you can see, you know, Kristen, the, the, the voice from Frozen, Kristen uh, Bell talking about postpartum depression, Brooke Shields, others sharing these things intimately on Instagram, on TikTok, on YouTube. But you're there, you're kind of suffering in, in terror. You're afraid of nursing your child. Your husband, Ron, is saying he's never seen you like this. It, it is amazing to go back and look at that period and, and for you to, to have this dialogue in the book with how you were suffering and how I imagine so many other mothers reading that out there saying, yes, I, I too had to suffer in this shame and anonymity of postpartum depression. It's something that was just you know dismissed as the blues. Oh, you'll get over it. Yeah, especially for somebody who has my personality while I'm just like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. You know, and all of a sudden I wasn't fine and I didn't know what was happening. I literally felt like I was standing outside myself watching this other person try to maneuver through my life. And I was afraid to be seen. You know, I wanted to hide all the time. I didn't want to come out of my room. And it was just completely not like me. I was fun loving. I was out there in front of everything. You know, I, I mean, and I, I couldn't understand, you know, I, I remember people would say to me, well, you shouldn't have had all those children. And I was like, if I didn't have all these children, I would have jumped out the window, you know, way before now, you know, because it was them. It was knowing that I was what they had to take care of them, even though I really struggled to take care of them at the time. And I remember the woman who came over, I wouldn't have even considered her a friend at the time, but she came almost every day and would just say to me, can I take your kids to the beach? And if she had called and asked me, I would have said, nope, I'm fine. You know, or I probably wouldn't have even answered the phone. But because she just showed up, somehow she knew. And I have wondered so many times, did she understand? She must have understood what I was going through. And at that time, you know, it, mm. it was the whole leave it to be very kind of mentality where we did, we just did what we, you know, we only showed our good side. We only showed the best. And it's one of the things I love about this time is that the more we show our wounds and the things that our weaknesses, people rally around us. They get it. They understand it. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, I did the same thing. And, you know, I, uh, people ask me all the time why I thought, felt to include what I included in the book. And I just went with my gut and I went with my heart. And I know that there are women out there who struggled with the same things. And I wanted them to know that, you know, we got through this. We are stronger than we think we are. Tell us, and you describe it in the book, what was it like to be, you know, to have this this house with seven kids? <laughs> well, other than that part, I loved it. I absolutely 100% loved it. They were like, uh, it was like being on stage every day for me. You know, it was like, get up, what are we going to do? I had to come up with fun ways for them to do things. You know, once we, when we started homeschooling them all, it was like I was just in my prime. You know, we did thematic studies. And I would be like, all right, if we're studying the constellations, we're going to go to the planetarium. We're going to get, we're going to hire a guy to go lay on the top of a mountain and tell us about the constellations. We're going to make our own. We're going to, you know, I would just go through this whole thing of all the things we could do around this one topic. And I felt like my children 
were really roundly educated because we really got into a topic rather than uh, 15 minutes on butterflies and we were done. You know, we would do a whole, our reading would be about that, our math would be about that. You know, I mean, everything we did would be around this topic until I changed it to a different subject, you know, and gosh, I loved it. I loved it every day. And there were days though, there were days I would come in at night and I'd be like, you know what? Today wasn't such a good day. I'm sorry. We'll try harder tomorrow. You know, I, I apologize to my children often because if I lost my temper or if I, I didn't want to be that, you know, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted their childhood to be magical. And of course, when they say, if you ask them, they would say that it is. But of course, we're our own worst critics, you know, and I'd be like, all right, guys, I'm really sorry about this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we'll try harder tomorrow, you know, and, and I felt like we were just constantly growing up together. I felt like I grew up with my children. Actually, I feel like I have some children whose souls are older than mine. And uh, they would say to me, are you sure you want me to do this, mom? Are you sure? I'd just be like, wait, let me think about it. Because <laughs> sometimes it was like, mm, this sounds like fun, but is it really a smart thing to do? <laughs> I could be talked into anything. <laughs> wow. Um, and so seven children that you had, your last child you had what year? Uh, 85. 85. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get in the move that you guys had uh, to California uh, as, as financial travails hit the family. But uh, hold that thought. Full disclosure, please stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. You can catch this show in Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. We are in Asheville, North Carolina at WPVM 103.7 FM and out in Ventura, California on KPPQ 104.1. Get in touch if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jenny Doan. She is uh, a, an American quilter extraordinaire author, YouTube personality. She's known potentially as the most famous quilter in the world on her uh, really heavily trafficked YouTube channel. The name of the book is How to Stitch an American Dream, A Story of Family, Faith, and Power of Giving. Uh, you are founder of the Missouri Star Quilt Company. Please take us back into your financial situation you know, after you had your seventh child, and it was a really rough go of it in the late 80s and early 90s. It was a rough go. We were still living paycheck to paycheck. And um, we were, uh, we, our little boy, who was, when he was about five, he got a tumor in his um, lymph gland. And that comes with a lot of medical bills. And we were barely just hanging on. So anything extra I had to work extra for, like, if we wanted to get an appliance, one of our appliances went out or something like that, I would have to work extra and do something so that we could afford that extra thing. And so there really wasn't extra for anything. And um, I was canning all the foods. I gleaned the fields. We lived in an area that was very prolific for, you know, grown vegetables and things like that. And I would glean fields. I had a big garden. You know, that's how I fed my family. And we just got swept under with this whole medical problem with Josh. And it just really, it just really took the wind out of our sails. And uh, we actually went and talked to a debt counselor. Those were brand new things then. They had never, you know, and, and mm. you know, I mean, they didn't really have them available for people. And we had to actually pay some money to talk to him. And then he said, I don't even know how you're living. I think you should file a, a medical bankruptcy. And we were just like stunned because we thought he was going to somehow help us out of that. And uh, turns out, you know, he says, I don't even know how you're eating. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't always know either. But I mean, obviously, we were fine. But 
we filed this medical bankruptcy and we just felt like maybe it would be cheaper for us to live someplace else. Ron had spent a couple of years living in the Midwest mm. and he, he said it was much cheaper to live there than it was in California. I think at the time it was the height of the interest rate craze. And I think we were paying about 12% interest rate on our mortgage. Mm. And, um, you know, and so I think we just thought, well, we would, we would give it a try. You know, I, I was one of those who'd never really been, except for my travel in high school, I'd never really been out of the state too much. And, and I was like, where is the Midwest exactly? What does that mean? You know, and, and, uh, we would, you know, Ron explained to me, you know, where it was and what we would do. And he, we kind of just put our finger on a map and said, well, we can just come here and try it. And, and uh, it was right around Kansas City, and there's a lot of smaller towns, and we thought it would be cheaper if we lived in a smaller town. You know, we had a little bit of a thought process, but that whole trip and everything like that, you know, we sold just nearly everything we owned to pay for a U-Haul and the things to take with us that were precious to us. I got to ask you, how do you, how do you, I read this and I wonder, you know, I, I, I think about my parents' siblings and they had extended you know, families in Iran, six or seven brothers and sisters or seven or eight or nine. And it had to have been a concern to divvy up the amount of food or, you know, I, I understand to the extent that you want to live off the fat of the land. And there was this agricultural instinct, you know, from Salinas where your father, uh, mm -hmm. with, you know, had a job with the Smucker Jam Company. But it is difficult to feed and clothe and oversee seven children. And moreover, you're not being paid for schooling them. You're kind of CEO of the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually could write a whole book on that. I'll tell you what I feed. I've had five kids on a, on a, about 50 bucks a week. And I had my children actually, I signed one children to each, one child to each day because I had seven children. So there were seven days and that child was over what we were going to eat for dinner that day. And it was their job to help me in the kitchen as well. And so, uh, so they would say, we want this. They'd scour the, um, the ads to find, the cheapest, you know, how they could afford what they wow. wanted to make. And, you know, they all, they've all learned really good lessons about how to do that. You know, my daughters, when they got married, they would call me up and they would say, I have this, this, and this, what can I make? You know, and I loved that game because it's like, all right, well, let's see, what can we make if we have this, this, and this, you know, but you know, nobody starved. Uh, everybody had plenty. Nobody went to bed hungry. And, um, I just, I mean, I don't know. I was just blessed with the gift to be able to figure that out. What about the state of government support? I know it's a combination of of uh, federal and state benefits in Missouri. I mean, the option of of turning to uh, food stamps or aid to family with dependent children. I know there's a self determination in your family, and there's a grit that you got from your parents, Frankie and and, yeah. and Dini. But I mean, at at some point, you needed help. You really needed help. You were bankrupt. We did. We didn't. Um, there was a. So there, the, there weren't programs there like WIC or anything like that when my kids were little, or if there were, I didn't know about it, but, um, I, mm. you know, and welfare had a big stigma attached to it. And so I, we were determined not to do that. We did go to our church for help a couple of times, like if we couldn't pay an electric bill or something like that, and they would help us. Um, but you, in our church, the, the welfare system is set up where you do work for what you get. And so, um, so you would go work at, you know, um, whatever they needed you to do, and then they would help you with this. And so, you know, you didn't tend to want to ask very often either. There was a, there, there shouldn't be, and there, and maybe it was only in my mind, but it just always seemed to me there was a stigma to that. I was very independent. I wanted to do it myself. 
And so we would just, we would just figure it out. And I remember as my, as my kids got older and have jobs, there were times that they would, I would say to them, can any of you pay the electric bill? You know, and they would, you know, one of them would say, I can pay the electric bill, you know? And, um, and I don't think they, they do remember things differently than I do. I always say to them, this was my perspective, you know, but, uh, I don't think it harmed them in any way to participate in helping our family. Uh, take care of it. But I do think it's made them all very good with their own finances and jobs and money. You know, they, they treat it way differently than we did. When I grew up, money was not something that was ever spoken about. You know, I never knew how much my parents made or what it cost for us to live. I, we were never privy to any of that. You know, you, you did chores. We didn't do the allowance thing. You know, I mean, it, it just wasn't the way it was then. And and so by the, when I got married, I just felt like we were, I was starting from scratch. I just had to figure it out all over again. And of course, I'd had several jobs and I would always, you know, save money for what I wanted. I moved out, I think got my, moved into an apartment with some girlfriends when I was about, oh, probably close to 19, 18 and a half or something like that. Because at 18, you were an adult and you were supposed to be on your own. And so my parents expected us to be gone by the time they were 18. And, uh, and so it wasn't very long after that before I moved into an apartment with a couple of girls and I had a job and I took care of my food and I can still remember spending $200 on things to set up this apartment and not having any food because I had to buy a broom and laundry soap and, you know, I had no (laughs) idea that all those things would cost so much money and I would not have, still not have any food, you know. So it was a, it was quite a wake up call for me, honestly. Jenny, it's 2003, and I understand your youngest child is out of the house. You're feeling the re- the real kind of empty nest heartbreak. These these children that surrounded you, there was certainly turmoil. But even going back to the birth of your first child and the abusive relationship you have, you really took you were really resuscitated. You really took sustenance from these children. Oh, Take me it. to that feeling because you must have been torn in that your parents, as you said, did expect you to leave and be self sufficient by age 18. What was in your head at age? 2003 when you were about to come a in the year 2003 when you were about to become an empty nester. So um as the children started leaving home it was it was quite a wake up call for me because I thought that was my job you know that was my work and all of a sudden what was I going to do to me it wasn't enough to just be at home and clean a house or have a hobby I needed to do something so I took stock of the talents I had and I thought I can cook. So I went to where I worked in a restaurant for a while. I worked in a nursing home cooking for a while. I thought I can take mm. care of kids. So I worked as a teacher's aide for a while, you know, and I was, I was kind of doing all these different little things, um, that I felt I could do. But that was when, um, when I was working at this boys school was when the kids decided that I really needed to find something else to do. But they they were actually worried, I think, that I was going to adopt all these children and bring them home because they were really troubled boys. <laughs> they were a mess. Sure. And um, and I just felt like if they had, you know, if they had a good mom, you know, I took my guitar and I sang to them and I took my books and I read to them and they adored me. And but I kept getting sadder and sadder because no matter how hard I tried, the system wasn't set up for them to succeed. It was set up for them to fail. And you know, we'd get, I'd, I'd get them along so far and then they'd just be bashed back down. And I kept watching their hearts break and, oh, I, it just was really tearing me up. And the kids are like, mom, you got to get out of there. You got to find something else to do. And that was the day that I went to pick up. I said, well, I've got to go pick up a quilt. And they wanted to know what quilt it was. And I said, I don't remember. It's been there at least a year. And they were like, what, what, why, you know, and they wanted to know the whole story behind it. And so, 
they said, well, what if we got you one of these machines? Could you do that? You know, and could you quilt for other people? And I said, I, well, I probably could. And we said, well, we feel like that, that would be a healthier option than what you're doing, you know, and, uh, and this way, you know, that was right after the market had crashed. I want to, I want to learn about 2008. That was a very disruptive moment. It's clearly the worst economy, uh, the worst economic calamity, worst financial crisis that Americans have felt since the Great Depression. How were you and Ron, I mean, to, to one extent, you were empty nesters, you'd offloaded a lot of the childbearing expenses, right. but your savings and your retirement took an enormous hit. So Ron, ever since, you know, once he uh, left the Honda uh, motorcycle shop, he went to work for a factory. He also went to work for Jam Smucker Company. And then he, when we moved to Missouri, he went to work for the Kansas City Star. And so our only retirement was in a 401k. That was all we had. And honestly, 100% for Ron and I, when the market crashed, it didn't really mean that much to us. We knew we had lost all that, but we also were like, well, we'll just keep working. You know, I live very much in the present. And so I was just like, well, we'll just keep working. We'll keep doing it. It didn't occur to me that there would ever be a time in our lives that we wouldn't be able to work, that we would have to live on what we had saved. But my children knew differently. And so, um, you know, mm. they, they were completely different with money than I was. And so they, they actually were the ones who were worried about what we were going to do. You're, someday you're going to be old enough that you're not going to be able to work. And I'm like, ah, we'll just keep, it won't take much to feed us. It won't take much to take care of us. You know, I was just like, you know, oh, Pollyanna, always looking on the bright side. I'm like, no, we can do this. And Ellen's like, well, I just feel like you need to rebuild this next egg. And if you could do two or three quilts a week, you know, that some of that would go to pay us back and the other part of it would go into your nest egg and you'd be able to help dad build up back up that retirement. And I'm like, well, it seems like a good idea. I could try it, you know. And so we were all in. We were like, sure. Well, Jenny, you wrote you wrote in the book, your son Alan sparked the idea for the business. And you wrote that nobody came to the store initially. Sometimes a week would go by and we wouldn't get any customers. We did it take out one or two ads in the newspaper, but that was all we could afford because we didn't have any money in the budget for advertising. But you stuck with it. And then YouTube, you parlay YouTube. Yeah. So at the time, I figured if I, so I was helping a friend with a museum over in the little town of Kidder, which is just seven miles from us, tiny little town. And I kept noticing that there was all these women's clubs that used to happen in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So many clubs that women were a part of. And I thought maybe people would like to get together and sew. So I started, a, I advertised for a Friday night sew. And the first week, we probably had 20 people. We moved everything to the walls, put some tables up. I didn't care if they brought mending, knitting, quilting, whatever. And so they were able to see what we had, see that we had a quilt machine and do this. And they came in and they sewed. Well, the next week, we couldn't fit that people in that, in that room. And so I had Ron finish another room in the building. And then the following week, we filled that room and we had to finish another room. Well, these people were really interested in what I was doing with this quilting and so I started showing them some things like this, and they would bring us quilts to quilt. So we weren't really selling very much then, but they would bring us quilts to quilt that they had made themselves, and that's kind of what was keeping us afloat. But it would be days on end. You know, you'd get one quilt, you'd work on it, you know, for a couple of days, they'd bring it back in, and a couple of days would go by, and you'd get another quilt. It wasn't like you got 10 quilts in a day, you know, you got a couple, and so we would, yeah. we would, we would just literally work on these uh, quilts, but you know, people wouldn't come in for days at a time. But then Alan uh, went to see what was happening with quilting online, and it hadn't really made the jump yet. And he was the one who said, 
you know, do you want to go onto YouTube? And I fought him on that because I was like, Alan, nobody my age is ever going to go to the computer to learn anything. You know, he was just at the Mm -hmm. cusp of that age where I spent his entire childhood saying, get off the computer and do something, you know? And um, I've apologized to him now for that, you know? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I didn't know YouTube was a thing. And I said to him, you probably don't want your mom there. That's where the crazy teenagers are. You know, YouTube was only one year old (laughs) at the time. And so, uh, you know, so it's, I mean, it was just totally not something I was like, well, I'll try it, you know, cause you want to help your kids. You want to make their dreams come true. And Alan's like, I just want to try this and see what happens, you know? Well, very quickly people loved first, you know, if there was anything on YouTube, it was just hands showing something. They loved that I was a personality. They loved that I was funny. They loved that I made a mistake and didn't care about it and took it out and did it over you know, and that following happened really fast. And as, you know, as things do, as they get bigger and they start rolling, it doubles and triples every time. And so it just, it, you know, it just grew so, so quickly. It was just really amazing. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You listen to Jenny Doan. She launched the Missouri Star Quilt Company and her YouTube channel out of the ashes of the Great Recession of 2008, we're talking about her return back from adversity and everything that she did to make this work. The book is called How to Stitch an American Dream, A Story of Family, Faith, and the Power of Giving. I got to ask you, and it sounds a little mercenary, and and maybe we're trained to not talk shop, but at what point did this become more than a hobby and it became profitable? I imagine the people at YouTube got in touch and say, maybe we want to share in on your ad revenue or Maybe the orders were coming in. There must have been what they call a hockey stick moment or a tipping point. Oh, there totally was. And um, I think it was the first time when we sold like eight orders in a day. And we just all thought we were just like we're miracle workers, you know. And then I remember the day we sold a hundred things in one day. And literally our girl who did the mail laid down in all the packages and we took a picture of her. You know, we were just so surprised. The other big starters were when Alan said, we need to hire somebody to do this. And I was like, no, 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 I'll work harder. I'll come in earlier. I'll stay later, you know? And he's like, mom, you're more valuable to me creating and sewing than you are cleaning. Mm. And that was huge for me because it made me feel like what I did was valuable for one. And um, and I realized, oh my goodness, you know, I have a gift and I need to concentrate on this, which I I wouldn't have realized without that. I would have just been trying to do it all. And I think that's actually, for my family and my children, it was one of those times where it's like, all right, let's all do what we're really good at. And then, you know, we'll be able to grow this whole company rather than all of us trying to do every little thing. But there was that kicker moment. You know, we've had several of those that come at different times. You know, it's like, okay, we sold this many things and we only have this many shippers and we we need more people, you know. And my kids have always known, they've always been really good at knowing what they're not good at. And so, you know, you get to a certain Mm -hmm. point in a business and you have so many employees and you have to hire an HR person and it can't be your friend who likes people. It has to be somebody who knows the law, (laughs) right? you know? And so all of a sudden it's like, we have to make this hire. And I always felt like, I was like, are you sure, Al? Are you sure? You know, because I, I, again, I don't, I'm not out there a risk taker. Jenny, you're not a risk taker and moreover, you're not a logistics and MBA person. How do you get... Your head around a supply chain and sourcing, do you and your son kind of wing it? Do you try to learn from other people? Do you? Uh, I understand you've had many companies in Silicon Valley visit you in Missouri. You're now kind of called the, the Disney World of quilting there. 
in Missouri to kind of learn from That's your true. lesson on, on kind of learning on the fly of, of MSQ company. Um, how did you learn about this? How did you, re- how did you reach out to people? What did you read? What did you study? So I actually think it was mostly Alan. You know, I, I was busy with the day-to-day. Sarah and Natalie and I were busy with the day-to-day, and Alan was the one who was moving ahead on these things. And Alan is very confident. And so even if he didn't know, you would think he did know. And he would talk to people, and he would network with people, and he would come home, and he would be like, all right, this is what we need to do next, you know. And he would have a whole new way of setting up shipping or we realized that, you know, we had to actually buy a scale because we couldn't just assume that all of our packages were going to weigh the same. And so, you know, we just kind of, we just kind of really, it was so organic. It was just organic as we needed something else. We found out about that one thing and we moved forward. You know, we got a lot of help from other people who had other businesses, people here in town who had businesses. They would mentor us when we would ask them questions. They were helpful. And, you know, because there were just so many things we didn't know about it because we didn't expect it to be anything but a little family business. And honestly, I remember Alan, he was talking to, Alan's an entrepreneur and he loves creating new businesses. And he was talking to his, a mentor of his about all these different businesses. And he he said, so tell me about the one you started for your mom. And he goes, well, this is what it's doing and this is what it's doing. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know what entrepreneurs would give for a business that has this kind of momentum? And it actually caused Alan to stop and really take a look at what was happening with us, what we were doing mm. at home, because uh, you know it was going so much faster. And in his mind, it was my little quilt business. You know, and it was just growing and growing and we needed more fabric and we needed to sell this and we needed to, you know, we needed to come up, figure out the 60-day, you know, how do you do the 60-day thing where you buy it, but you have to pay it back in 60 days? You know, we had to, there were just so many things we had to learn and it was all just really organic. I want to illustrate for the listeners how it went from this kind of organic way to kind of fill your lonely heart and do something after you were an empty nester. You truly put... Hamilton, Missouri on the map. The city is now called the Disneyland of Quilting or Quilt Town USA. You write that the growth of uh, your company has been life-changing for the people of Hamilton and the surrounding towns. We have more than 450 employees on staff. That's a lot of jobs in a rural area. We have 13 quilt shops in downtown Hamilton. People call it a Disneyland for quilters. Before the pandemic, we were drawing 100,000 visitors per year to our shops to a town of 1,500 people. We grew so big and so fast The teams from Google and YouTube and other big Silicon Valley companies have come out to interview us just to hear our story and understand how to work with us. And something that's so poignant is you describe how how small the world is and how important interpersonal connections are. There was a woman from Brazil who put you in tears after she met you on the YouTube channel. And she comes, you say, all those miles to meet me, all because of what I had taught her to do in a tutorial online. That, for you, changed everything. It did change everything. It did change everything. I, you know, in my mind, I still don't get how we can talk to Hawaii without there being a wire. (laughs) You know, I just, I just, uh, those things are miraculous to me. And YouTube is one of those things that's all over the world. And it just is so stunning to go to a whole nother country and know that there are people who follow you there, who watch you, who feel like they know you. It's, oh, it's hard to wrap your head around it. It's just amazing. Joan, in the uh, in the few minutes we have left, you have more than two dozen. I, I you have two dozen grandchildren. Yeah, two dozen. How are you advising them, vis a vis what you were advised? And yes, you took a, a a very. It was a baptism by fire, and it was not an easy route. 
You have a lot of perspective and a lot of gratitude in this book. You write that what I realize now is the pieces of all of our lives are being stitched together. The fabric stretches all the way back to our mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. But in all of our lives, so many of the little pieces of our past are part of the beautiful quilt that tells our story. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all this stuff, when you're surrounded by this bumper crop of children and grandchildren, tell me how kind of this has been transubstantiated to future generations in your advice. So I love my grandchildren, and um, but they're not mine. They, they are their parents. And my grandchildren will come to me sometimes and ask me advice, and I will give them my advice, and I will say to them, but your parents, this is, your, this is their job. So, you know, they need to do this. You need to talk to them about this. And so I've tried really hard to make sure that they know that. But the flip side of that is if I feel to say anything or I want to express my opinion to any of them about anything, um, I do. But the bottom line with my grandchildren is I love them no matter what they do. You know, we do have several of them who work for us and they they have to toe the line just like everybody else. And so I feel like they know that if they work hard, they get rewarded. And, and if they don't, they just don't. But, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, I'm never short on advice, that's for dang sure, you know. I remember one of my granddaughters called me asking me about what I thought about something, some dress she had, and I said, you know what, I had a standard for my kids, but your mom is your mom, and that's her job. She gets to tell you, and I said, I love you no matter what you do. So, uh, you know, that's kind of how we do it here. Our grandchildren were very, very a part of their lives, and I just love them dearly, but they're not mine. They're theirs. They're their parents. Oh, boy. Well, what is yours is this great company, the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and actually really catapulting Hamilton, Missouri, which I, I, I read this book and I feel like you guys just, you know, almost like a dartboard thing. You pick that city and serendipity took you there from the West yeah. and you really have brought a phenomenon. It's kind of like Yakov Smirnov in Branson, Missouri, but Branson's a whole other issue. But yeah. the book is called How to Stitch an American Dream, A Story of Family, Faith, and the Power of Giving. The author is Jenny Doan, founder of the Missouri Star Quilt Company. Highly recommended uh, read. Can you give us your social media particulars where you can be found on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook? Yes, I actually don't know all of them, but I know we're on Instagram as uh, Missouri Star Quilt Company. I have a personal Instagram that is Jenny MSQC. We're on Facebook as Missouri Star Quilting Deals, Missouri Star All-Stars, Missouri Star Hamilton, and uh, I'm pretty sure we have a Twitter. We do have a Missouri Star Quilt Company on TikTok. Some of my grandchildren do that, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. A grandmother, a grandmother deputizing her dozens of grandchildren to get on TikTok. Jenny Doan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's just been my pleasure. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR One. Spotify and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. You can contact us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can get us over the air on the radio waves on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia and Washington, D.C. We're down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. You can listen to us out on the West Coast in Ventura, California on KPPQ. And holler if you too would like us on your air. In addition, I will have great news soon for you on coming back across the great state of Virginia, including Richmond and Charlottesville. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.